Hello, my name's David Runciman and this is Talking Politics. We're coming to you in a week where the stock market is all over the place. We're going to talk about that. We're going to talk about the housing market in the UK. We're going to talk about the market in Donald Trump, buy or sell. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books, Europe's leading magazine of books and ideas. We've already had some LRB writers on this podcast and we'll have some more soon. There's a reading list of pieces to accompany the podcast at lrb.co.uk forward slash talking, along with a special subscription offer for Talking Politics listeners. 12 issues of fearless, expansive, elegant writing for just £12. I'm joined by Helen Thompson, who's back, and we're going to pick up where we left off last week. Pleasure to welcome back Erin Rapport, our correspondent from Minnesota, and I was hoping we were going to be celebrating the Minnesota Vikings. Oh. Having Sorry, Philadelphia has to occasionally get a treat, right? Well, they've been around since 1933, and it's their first one, so good for them. Good for them, and also a pleasure to welcome back Chris Brooke. We're going to try and connect, I think we're going to make it, the housing crisis in the UK, which Helen and I talked about very, very briefly at the end of last week, through to what's going on in the markets, and the wider question of whether Donald Trump is up or down. And I think what connects these things is that we spend a lot of time, like everyone else, talking about the surface of politics, the short-term up and down in the new cycle, even in the electoral cycle, and there are some underlying fundamentals. There are some things that remain true regardless of who's in office, and there are some factors that affect people's behaviour, including their voting behaviour, which are not just determined by who wrote which memo, what does the FBI think, is Theresa May a good thing or a bad thing, but actually people's experiences in their own lives of how they live and, let's start with this, where they live. So Helen, we I, I left it last week by asking you a blunt question to which you gave a commendably straight answer, which was, is the NHS or the housing crisis a bigger threat to this government? And indeed, you might say to any government that has to preside over it. After we spoke, um, I was reading a book and I'm just going to name check it now, by Andrew Heinmore called What's Left Now, which is an interesting attempt to get beyond some of the partisanship of left politics, that is to get beyond the idea that everything is a disaster and it's all the fault of neoliberalism, and to offer what might be called a slightly more old-fashioned new Labour view that it's more nuanced and that on some of the big issues like inequality, there is a mixed picture. Inequality is rising in some respects, falling in others. Lots of the things that people on the left say are all going to hell in a handcart aren't. But housing is. So what really struck me in his account was that the one thing he just describes as an unequivocal policy failure that runs over 40 years is the failure of British governments to address what has become a huge housing crisis. And he has some pretty startling charts to illustrate this. And just one, and this is, as they say, radio, so I can't really do much more than describe it. But um, it's a chart that starts in 1961. And it measures the spending on housing as a percentage of final income for the richest 5%, for the poorest 5%, and the poorest 5 to 10%. And basically, for the richest 5% in 1961, a bit more than 10% of their income was spent on housing, and now a bit less than 10% of their income is spent on housing. For the poorest 5% in 1961, just around 15% of their income was spent on housing, and now 45% of their income is spent on housing, which means, as he says, and I think he's probably right about this, one of, if not the biggest drivers of inequality in this country is housing. So if that's true, and it's a 40 plus, 50 plus year story, why do governments allow it 
to happen? I think the answer, in short, is is that they don't understand the ways in which they can stop it happening. And to the extent that they have got some, if you like, levers that they can pull, some of the things that they've done have had unintended consequences. And that what we've ended up with is an extremely complicated distributional picture. In this sense, whatever government policy did to help one section of the British electorate in terms of housing, particularly those who are already homeowners and paying for those homes by mortgages, is going to hurt somebody else. So that you can do things that can help homeowners, or you can do things that can help renters, you can do things that can help those who are wanting to basically be social renters, i.e. living in council houses, but it's incredibly difficult to do something that helps everybody. And And that includes building more homes? And that includes building more homes, yeah, because one of the consequences of building more homes for people to buy is that you will force down the prices of houses for those who already have them. Now, that is not particularly problematic, perhaps, for those who own their houses outright, but it is problematic for those who've got large mortgages on their houses that they own, particularly if they are in a position where, for work reasons or whatever reason, that they want to move, they effectively they effectively can't. You've got to add into that the whole planning system in this country, which is not set up to move quickly or to allow houses to be built on green belt and then you've got to look at the question of, of how local government can deal at the other end of things with those who are looking for social housing and the rules on what local governments can do including what they can borrow make it incredibly difficult for them to engage in large-scale council house building they go into these private partnerships like what happened in Haringey and they cause a great deal of problems not least because like in the in the Haringey case and what's happened in other London boroughs like Southwark and Lambeth is is that that solution involves literally removing people's houses removing people out of their houses destroying them the houses they live in so this is a speculation although I, mean, I think that there's probably something to it is it possible that this is one of those issues that really does collide with the way we do electoral politics in this country which is constituency based MPs which obviously give us the the merits of that, which we know are that they are very accountable locally and that they have to respond very much to local pressures, but these are 650-plus different local pressures. And the local pressures tend to be, on this issue, very resistant to change, including building houses in particular places. So you get the absurd example is Theresa May. On the one hand, she needs more houses to be built, and on the other hand, in her own constituency, she will line up with her constituents, objecting to an attempt to build new housing on greenfield land. I think there must be a lot of truth to that, but I keep coming back to this moment in the middle 1990s or thereabouts. I mean, we shouldn't be surprised that the housing crisis began to take shape during the Thatcher period. Thatcher was very openly the party of homeowners. She was determined to see the great social housing empires in England, uh, in Britain, uh, dismantled through the right-to-buy policy It was one of the ways in which she did her version of the class war. The moment I'm interested in is when Labour was preparing to assume power at the end of the long Thatcher major period. And in those days, I was a student and my then-girlfriend, now I'm happy to say wife was active in Labour students' events, and we used to, uh, I used to go along to, to see people like Gordon Brown give, give speeches to, to activists. And the thing that a Labour politician could say in those days that would 
lead to sustained applause was that they were going to systematically eliminate the constraints on building that the Conservative government had placed on local authorities. And that was something that Labour activists looked forward to when the new Labour government came to power. And the thing I'm curious about is that new Labour never pushed for that sustained housing boom. They never pushed for that um, sustained programme of, of, of house building with local authorities leading the way. And I think on that graph you were showing us the, the, the situation is bad when New Labour comes to power and it doesn't get much, much worse during the New Labour decade. It then ratchets up in its severity around the time of the financial crisis. But that seems to me to be the great missed opportunity. Yes, there are electoral pressures that mean that voters often don't want development going on near them. That's the, the classic uh, predicament of nimbyism, not in my backyard. First um, past the post nimbyism, I would call it. But I think there's also a story about why the Labour Party chose not to deliver on something that it had talked about for a very long time. So in a way, this is the question, which is we've got this long-term predicament and governments of different persuasions failed to deal with it, which suggests that the underlying problem, the fundamental issue here is structural. And this is a particularly UK problem. Of course, there are these issues in other places too. I mean, Aaron will come on to the States in a minute and Europe too. But it seems to me that we have a very distinctive political system and we have a very distinctive problem with housing. And it's probably the case that these things are related. I mean, there is another element to it that isn't about that, though I, th- though I like to come back to something about local government and the electoral system, is, is that one of the things that's happened, and Britain is not alone in this, in having a city like London, but it is particularly acute, I think, in the London case of where housing has become a, a magnet for foreign investment and foreign investors who want to buy houses and then rent them out. I think I'm right in saying that between 2014 and 2016, 13% of all the purchases in London were done by foreign investors. Now, if you look at New Zealand's politics, a country that we were talking about a while ago, in some sense, the most important issue that they had in their election back in October was this issue of foreign home ownership. And indeed, the new government there is in the process of introducing a ban on foreign ownership of houses, except for Australians. And I think it's also an issue in Australian politics. So it's obviously not, I mean, it's not just a UK issue. It's in Canadian politics as well. It's in countries with very internationalised economies, with large cities of a kind in which lots of people relatively young people would like to live and there's lots of opportunities for renting these apartments as they usually are out. So there is something that's going on that's beyond the structure. I think on the issue of the electoral system, I think you can see this really clearly in the local government cases and and maybe one of the issues why we got to housing last week was because of what was going on in Haringey. And what you see in the London councils, particularly the inner councils, is these these huge Labour majorities in Lambeth, for instance, in the last election, Labour won forty-one percent of the vote, and they have they got ninety-two percent of the seats. So you have these inner London boroughs that are completely dominated by the Labour Party, and the only opposition they can be then is with internally to the Labour Party. They've also tended to be dominated by the Blairite wing of the party. You've got lots of local opposition to these private sector partnerships that the Labour councils get themselves in, involved in. And I think that what we're seeing there is a grassroots reaction in local communities against a particular party in government, which is, in this sense, in local government, at least in London, being captured by one faction of the party. And the only way in a situation where you have such dominant one-party government for there to be any resistance is for 
factional fighting within the Labour Party take place. So Aaron, does this sound to you like a UK problem in our politics? There are housing crises everywhere. American politics has been through a version of this because the financial crisis is itself intimately tied to acute issues about housing, mortgages and home ownership. But does does what we've just described to you now sound distinctively a UK problem? No, it does sound more like a structural problem to me. By the way, I love the turn of phrase used earlier, old-fashioned new labor, which seems to me to be an oxymoron, but... uh, Oh, no. Oh, no. (laughs) Oh, no. So, you know, if I was to take a really macro look at this problem, uh, kind of a global level amongst the developed economies, I would say it has something to do with the financialization of the economy, that an increasingly large amount of GDP is in the finance sector. And the finance sector has gotten increasingly creative with its financial instruments based on debt. And where do people have most of their debt and where do they have most of their wealth tied up? They have most of their wealth tied up in homes. And so in the United States, the ability to get these subprime mortgages It drove more housing, but it also actually had the effect rate of simultaneously driving the prices of houses up, up, up in an artificial fashion unsustainably because the people who are taking out a lot of these loans couldn't actually afford them in the long term. So I think the financialization of the global economy has something to do with this. The other thing I was going to say was Thomas Piketty's work, and we've had him on the show, I'll plug an earlier episode if you haven't already heard it, when it's been uh, kind of reanalyzed and and played around with by uh, other economists. When you look at the increasing returns to uh, wealth versus labor, actually a lot of that is, is in the real estate sector of it. So what does this tell me? Well, it tells me that right, you have increasing wealth and thus increasing power based on real estate, and that's going to be very influential in terms of political influence. So those people with political influence who really care about their wealth in terms of their real estate holdings are not going to be eager to see a lot of policies enacted that are going to be bringing down the prices of housing or real estate. And just to say one more thing about that chart I mentioned earlier on, actually, there are two different bits of it. From 61 to 81, it actually doesn't move much. It's a very slow incline. And the difference in percentage uh, spent on housing between the poorest and the richest is still pretty narrow. And then it starts to go up. So it's from 81 till now, really. And so if you look at that, it doesn't look so much like some deep structural thing as that something happened at the end of the 70s, the beginning of the 80s. And in this book, which is saying to people on the left, don't blame neoliberalism for everything. In fact, in some cases, thank neoliberalism for things that you value. This is one of the cases where neoliberalism, for whatever whatever that means, does look like the culprit. Okay, this is a sort of screeching segue. Is that how, how DJ said? But I think these things are connected. So we're talking about something in UK politics, which is a sort of rumbling source of really deep-seated discontent. And indeed, I think if Jeremy Corbyn ends up as Prime Minister and you want to know the reasons why, this should be somewhere near the very top of the list. I think list. it should be the top. So it should be at the top. In the US, we have a year plus of Donald Trump's presidency in which the coverage is focused almost exclusively on the, the madness, the chaos, the craziness, the the infighting, the outfighting, the FBI, the this, the that. And underneath that, deep underneath that, there is a longer-term story about whether Americans are finally, post the financial crisis, starting to feel better off. And there is fairly significant polling evidence that they are. Just to quote some figures on this, this is from the Gallup Mood of the Nation poll. This sounds fairly authoritative, though it's just one poll. 
On the economy, 58% of Americans say they're satisfied at the end of Donald Trump's first year in office, up 12 points from 46% in the last days of Obama's administration. This is pre the gyrations in the stock market, but still. Approval on the economy is up. Um, the Consumer Confidence Index is at its highest for 17 years. And on broad questions of security, and that could have also obviously include what Trump might mean by security, people are feeling safer too. And... In polling terms, Trump's approval ratings are starting to tick up. The gap between the Republicans and the Democrats in the generic congressional polls is narrowing. Do we think that beneath all of the, I'll ask Aaron this first, beneath all of the Comey this, uh, noons that, memo the other, there is uh, something that we should be focusing on here, which is that Trump is presiding over an economy and indeed a society which, though it may be very uncomfortable with its president, is increasingly comfortable with its own predicament. I think that's right. And actually, to go back to just the electoral outcome in 2016, one of the interesting things is that if you use kind of these macro indicators that oftentimes political scientists use when they're trying to predict uh, the outcome of a major election, like the status of the economy and the approval rating of the outgoing incumbent and things like this, that did a pretty good job of predicting what the vote total was going to be, which we would think is really unusual, right? Because as you said, there's all these crazy details and the, the 2016 presidential election seems so unusual. Yeah, but, it's like no other and the two candidates were meant to be like no others. And right. Yet- and yes, they were just they were the generic Republican, the generic Democrat yeah. in these terms. And that has something to do also with the fact, right, that when political partisan identities really crystallize and solidify and polarize the way they are in the United States, it doesn't matter how unusual your candidate is, you have a tendency now to get behind them. But it also relates to the fact that you know political scientists and people who are political junkies were narcissists in a way, right? We project our own kind of attention, uh, what we think is interesting onto the general electorate. But most people, you know, they're rationally ignorant of a lot of these details, right? They have jobs and kids and lives, and they're not going to be paying attention to did the Nunes memo, was it, was it outlying the FBI's biases, you know, explicitly or not? Or was there a footnote that actually, you know, and so on and so forth. These are minutiae that a lot of people aren't going to factor in because they just don't register really in their day-to-day experiences. And so, and so yeah, I think that... But they do register when their wages tick up. Yes, because that is much more directly something that you can experience. Now, the striking thing, again, about Trump was that some of what I'm saying must be overstated because the economy has been doing well for a year or more, really, right, goes back to the Obama administration. And yet his approval ratings had been historically low. The other thing I would note is, oh, I'm going to blank on the name. I can fill this in later on. But a researcher had been looking at over decades of polling data, these generic ballot outcomes, and looking at whether or not they're cyclical and taking averages and then comparing the current GOP performance to these historical averages. And actually, historically, there is an uptick for whatever reason, right about now, uh, when it comes to the party that is controlling Congress. So actually, if you want to look at it that way, right? This is somewhat expected, though the, the explanation for why it would be happening right now is and, not exactly clear. And there's an uptick now, but it doesn't last by implication. No, it does not last. When they when you actually hit the electoral cycle itself, the elections, it fades away. Right? Yes, it, yes, it does. Right. I think that there is a political development that connects what Aaron said with Trump himself or Trump and the Republicans, and that is the tax reform. The tax reform looked like it was pretty unpopular when it was going through Congress. It got a lot of bad press. The Democrats framed most of the narrative around it as a as a giveaway to the, the rich. If you look at perceptions of that tax reform 
now it's very different now various people quite a lot of americans are getting bonuses as a result of this tax reform and companies are extremely happy there's a feel-good animal spirits factor being injected into the american economy because of it now I think if you've got a different kind of hat on, a fiscal conservative hat on, you might think, OK, there's something to worry about here, given this tax giveaway, when you look at the state of America's debt. But for an immediate stimulus to the economy, it looks like it's paying off. And Trump and the Republicans, I think, have got credit for it. And I think ultimately, in terms of the midterm elections, the Democrats have got on the wrong side of this. I think Nancy Pelosi the other day described what workers were getting out of this as crumbs. Yeah, crumbs. Well, if you're as rich crumbs as she, if you're as rich as she is, then maybe that a thousand dollars a year extra looks like crumbs, but it really doesn't for plenty of people in Middle America. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number smart beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number limited edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Talking Politics is brought to you in partnership with the London Review of Books. If we're talking about things outside the headlines and to do with uh, how economic prosperity is experienced by the voters, we, we shouldn't lose sight of what also happened in healthcare last year, that if we're thinking about why voters feel confident or secure or insecure, a lot of Americans are in a more precarious position than they were because of what the Republicans have been doing with Obamacare. And it may be that, as it were, they don't affect the political calculations because the kind of people in the lower end of the income spectrum who are facing a, a less happy healthcare predicament were never likely to be voting Republican anyway. Uh, but I think if we do think about why voters might be feeling happier or unhappier, more secure or less secure, we shouldn't just look at matters of taxation and the economy. Uh, there are other things going on too. And presumably those things are operating on different timescales because the the insecurity of what the Republicans have done to Obamacare will take some time, and obviously it depends on people's personal circumstances, to feed through. Whereas a tax bonus is a tax bonus, and you just you get it more or less straight away. Also, there are some winners from what Trump's done, or Trump and the Republicans have done on Obamacare, because abolishing the individual mandate is something that is beneficial to some people. So in a way, the big question here is the things that we've been describing really don't have a lot to do with Trump. I mean, I think we can, you know, a lot of it, he's, he, he inherited a pretty strong economy that was primed to grow. And then he sort of let the reins loosen a bit, or his party did. The things that are happening through Congress around Obamacare, he's not in control of that process. And what people expected from Trump was a big, big infrastructure spending, big spending to repair or build American infrastructure and have a stimulus that way. We haven't seen that. Instead, it's been Trump allowing the House Republicans to do their thing and uh, and slash taxes, especially at the high yeah. end. But a, a book that we've talked about a bit on this podcast, Arkin and Bartel's Democracy for Realists, which has made a case that sort of gets widely discussed now, which is, doesn't matter whether Trump was responsible or not. Voters have a tendency simply to correlate between whoever happens to be sitting in the White House or whoever happens to be their representative and things that have improved or not improved for them. 
even if it's shark attacks. I mean, it could be anything, right? The weather. Um, My shark attacks are way down, so I'm happy. Thanks, so Trump. I realize by doing this, I'm sort of already getting back from the thing we're meant to be talking about. But can Trump really ride this? So on the Aiken and Bartels thing, first, I would say one of the things to take away from them, too, and what we see in the in the data is that hard Democrats and hard Republicans, the objective economic indicators matter less than who is in the White House, right? So now Democrats are less positive about the economy and Republicans are more positive. And that happened basically overnight once once Trump took office. Uh, bef- and, and this Gallup survey absolutely reinforces that. The, the big movements are among Republicans. Amongst independents even more. Actually. Yeah, independents are moving, are moving too. But yeah, Democrats are not going to be moved by this. The thing I was going to say where Trump can get credit for moving the economy and arguably to the worse is if you look at what's happened in the stock market and hasn't so much been gyrating as it's been plummeting uh, well, bounced up yesterday. bounced up a little bit yesterday um, I don't know I'm gonna while you speak I'm gonna see he did a I, lot of gyrating did yesterday. a lot of gyrating yesterday so uh, the idea that when you have high unemployment and fairly stagnant economy that you want to do fiscal stimulus and you have low inflation right that makes sense. When you already have historically low inflation and you have low unemployment and you have corporations sitting on a ton of cash and then you really cut taxes and you say, yeah, I want to spend a lot of money on infrastructure. And also I want to put you know $1.5 trillion into uh, nuclear weapons over 30 years, which is something new coming out of the nuclear posture review and build a large wall and other things like this, right? That's uh, not counter cyclical. That is a pro cyclical type of economic policy that's going to be causing inflation fears and interest rate fears um, and a weakening dollar, which is what we see, and can make the stock market drop 8%. I should say, just looking now, the stock market is not gyrating. It's flat. It's flat. Today. Yeah. Calm down. For, for the last not half Not fully half a correction, because I think a correction is technically, technically a 10% adjustment. I don't think that London's the center of this, so I don't think it's... Uh... <laughs> I know. I know. I think that a lot of this turns on actually what the state of the American economy actually is. And there is a way of telling the story, which is is that Obama presided over a pretty good recovery and handed on this um, legacy, good economic legacy to Trump, from which he is now benefiting, not least because the share market last year went up an awful lot. But there's another way of telling the story, which says, look, since 2007, when the American economy went into recession, America hasn't had a single year of growth of 3%. I think people were talking before the stock market started its gyrations that the first quarterly growth figure for this year might turn in above 3%. But who knows now in the context of the fact that the financial market conditions are now nothing like what they were and that does affect confidence. You can talk about the unemployment rate being low or you can talk about the labour participation rate being low. So there's And the productivity yeah, rate being there's low. Most, there's, there's very different ways of interpreting the economic data that get you to pretty radically different outcomes as to what we think might be going on. And I think actually the trigger, or what appears to be the trigger, I should say, for the stock market gyrations that began on late Friday afternoon was this wage data that came out, wage and jobs data that came out in the US. And the headline figure on it that sent the stock market into a spin, as it would seem. Or we should say sent the robots that yeah. do the, do the <laughs> trading and spins. Spin. Those yeah, robots suddenly started sweating. Was that average hourly earnings were growing, I think it was at 2.9%. Now, it didn't take long, actually, for the people who spend a lot of time looking at this data to say, ah, yeah, but average weekly earnings went down. That actually what went on was is that fewer hours were worked. 
So actually, you have this fear of inflation or supposed inflation that gets interjected into the, the share markets. It turns out not to be really the story of what's going on. But as a consequence, because of the really structural, febrile state of the markets that we've now had two, three days of really problematic trading and the fear that this is going to cause contagion is at the moment really only in the share markets into um, other assets. Now, once you get into a situation where there's the, the prospect of various of these asset bubbles, including the ones in bonds bursting, then we move into a whole different monetary and financial environment. And to get us back to um, Jeremy Corbyn's hopes of you know <laughs> number 10, and if you say, what's his most important policy? It's probably this pledge New Deal, I think they're calling it, to build a million new homes over the course of a parliament financed by borrowing. At the moment, it's easy to make the argument and say, oh, there's no problem borrowing because interest rates are zero and the central bank can do this, that and the other. But if that monetary environment just dissipates because these bubbles, then we're in a whole different political context. Because one of the reasons why Corbyn can make his arguments is because you could say, look, this is an easy solution to the housing problem because we don't have to worry about borrowing and interest rates. But that is a contingent thing. I think, at least I think that it's a contingent thing. One of the things I sometimes wonder in these cases is whether the construction industry has the capacity to deliver the volume of housing that projects like that um, call for. I'm, I'm all in favour of this kind of thing and I want to see a lot more houses built, but the British economy is not very good at big infrastructure problems as we see with the various attempts to upgrade parts of the rail network and the way in which rail track seems to be only able to deal with uh, one big project at a time. And sometimes I wonder whether, even with the best will in the world and even with changing the rules about local authorities and even with providing a great deal of central government support, whether the British construction industry is able to build on that scale, whether it has the capacity. I'd be delighted if it does, but that's one of the things in my amateur way I'm somewhat sceptical about. And after all, Theresa May and Donald Trump, they do have this in common. They both came into office promising big infrastructure spending, and they both really struggled to deliver on that. Yeah, that's right. And uh, I think the reasons for that are, are slightly different. I mean, the reason... Yeah. And they are different in other ways. They're different in other ways. But I, I, you know, I would agree, right, that capacity is also an important component of this. And I actually, like uh, Chris was saying, in my even more amateurish way, have no real understanding of, of this in the British context, except that I've been paying attention to the Carillion story a little bit. And so that would make one somewhat worried about capacity, but that's probably too anecdotal to matter. I think there is one parallel between them in that both they have parties or parts of the party that they represent and in Trump's case nominally represents are simply not interested in that agenda. The Republicans in Congress are not particularly interested in infrastructure. He may get something out of them but nothing like on the scale that he requires. If you go back to the autumn here prior to the Conservative Party conference there was a lot of briefing that seemed to be coming from number 10 and various members of the cabinet that was going to be a big commitment on social housing expenditure. It would be the first time that a Conservative government had essentially committed government money to building council houses in a long time. In the end, the figure was, I think, two billion. And it was pretty clear that Philip Hammond, go back to someone we talked about last week, had, had slapped down May and others in the cabinet who wanted something much bolder. So on the one hand, in her speech, Theresa May was saying, look, housing is, quote, a disaster for young people. And yet the policy response that she was able to get agreed with in the cabinet because of Hammond's position was actually really quite limited. And Hammond's argument was we can't afford it. And now the Republicans in Congress are not in a position to say we can't afford things at the moment when they've just given 
um, done this major um, tax reform, they simply don't have the enthusiasm. And they can afford it, they just don't want to do it. Infra- infrastructure. Well, I think whether they can afford it, as I say, is, is a question that is the answer to which depends on what you think about the durability of this present monetary environment. Because, you know, the United States debt is now, the government debt is over 100% or around 100%. Is that sustainability of that is pretty much dependent on this monetary environment continuing indefinitely. Okay, so can I ask a question that I hope does tie some of this together, which is the seems to be the big question. It touches on not just what Helen said there, but what Helen's been saying on this podcast for quite a while. So the last 18 months, two years, have been in political terms full of gyrations. I mean, politics has been gyrating all over the place, while the stock market hasn't. I mean, the stock market's been steadily going up. And volatility hasn't been there in the markets. The volatility has all been in politics. If the volatility comes back into the markets, and indeed, if we move into a new economic environment, is there a possibility that politics will revert back to something perhaps more familiar, maybe even more stable, especially if this market volatility is being underpinned by a return to growth in many parts of the world? Or, and I think I know what Helen's answer to this, are we actually moving from one monetary and economic environment into something quite unknown? And that actually we should expect not that politics will settle down as the markets gyrate, but that we're entering uncharted territory and that politics is likely to be uncharted too. I say I know what you think this, and I'm looking at you and you look like you're thinking. I was thinking, I think we are fundamentally living in uncharted territory and I think we have been since 2008 when the Federal Reserve Board responded to the financial crisis with quantitative easing in the way in which it it did. There's one, as you were talking, I was thinking there's one way in which I think the return to volatility in the financial markets would act as a constraint on some of the political developments that we've seen over the last few years. And I think we use Corbyn as an example here. I think that the more that we see risk in the financial markets, particularly in bond markets, the harder it will be for Corbyn-like politics. Because I think one of the things that's made it easier, and I think you can see this in the complete difference between Labour in 2015 under Ed Miliband and Labour in 2017 under Corbyn, was is that nobody was saying to Jeremy Corbyn in 2017, I know in part was because no one expected him to win, but leaving that aside, is, is like, do your figures add up? There was just a complete sort of fantasy element to the, the financial side. Now, in a way, that is possible in a politics in which central banks are going to facilitate the endless expansion of debt. But if the bond markets act in ways that prevent that, then we're back to, I think, pushing left politics a little bit back to what's what we would think of as the centre ground, though in some sense I'm not sure the centre ground exists anymore. The other side of it, though, I think where we say that, look, actually, when we get back to the world of monetary and financial risk, that we're going to see more gyrations in politics would be Italy, because this is a, this is a country where its entire economy and its entire fiscal position is now dependent on European Central Bank's Didn't you say that you saw a chart that said that if you stripped out, apart from the ECB, who was buying Italian bonds, the answer is nobody? Yes. So if you move to a world in which the the ECB is no longer doing that, and that may well be the world in which it's no longer run by an Italian from the latter part of... Are you conspiracy theorists? (laughs) 2019, 
then I think you can expect to see a lot more gyration in Italian politics. But then the other side of this, which is we are meant to be seeing now a return to, broadly speaking, economic growth. And to go back to what we were talking about here, some of the things that will feed into people's wage packets and other aspects of their lives. It's not just in the United States that at least possible, maybe the UK is an exception because we have different kinds of uncertainties, but we hear it in France and other places that some of these measures of people's sense of economic and other forms of security may be going to, while the markets are gyrating, tick up. And doesn't that stabilise politics? I mean, isn't a big part of this what's happened over the last 10 years that people have felt both hard done by and insecure and they may be feeling less of that? I can't comment with anything like the authority that Helen can on on large-scale macro and financial economic things. But one of the kinds of arguments I keep getting drawn back to around now is the kind of argument that Jürgen Habermas was making in the 1970s. He published this lovely little book called Legitimation Crisis, in which he argued that, first of all, drawing on older Frankfurt School theory about the way in which economic crisis had a tendency to be displaced into the political system. So instead of getting an economic crash, you've got a cabinet crisis or a change of government. And then he posited that political crises get displaced into the cultural sphere, And in those days, Habermas was still an optimist. So he talked about what he called slow revolution, as political crises were displaced into the cultural sphere, and ultimately, somewhere down the line, you got socialism. And it's a nice, elegant piece of theory construction. And on the one hand, I think we see some of that in, uh, but without the optimism, in the way in which the political crisis inside the Conservative Party over the relationship to the European Union has turned into a kind of legitimation crisis, a kind of the division of the electorate into leavers and remainers and conflicts over, quite deep-seated conflicts about what British citizens want their political community to look like and how that feeds into quite profound aspects of what what they want to feel like as British citizens has come to the fore. But it's also, uh, Habermas's theoretical structure is also the backdrop for Wolfgang Strake's book, Buying Time, where he argues that a lot of what we associate with neoliberalism and more recently with what's been going on with the European single currency are ways in which people try to keep a system going and try to keep the capitalist economy from being able to realise profits and so on in what would otherwise be very unfavourable circumstances. And Aaron's already mentioned Thomas Piketty and he's another great pessimist about the future, that the economy might grow, but in his famous equation, R is greater than G, so ultimately it's the, it's the capitalists that will benefit more from that. And the, and the politics that we have cannot correct for this. And I think that's right. So I think you can tell stories about how, well, there may be growth and people may feel more confidence and that will may lead to a stabilisation of politics and something that looks more like a politics we're familiar with. But it seems to me there's just so much going on that suggests that we're not heading back to an easy path of growth and an easy stabilisation of the political system. There's so many sources of instability and so much that can go wrong. And as Helen said, this is also the age of contagion. There's no question that a lot of what drives policymakers and others is this deep fear that one full step in an unrelated part of the world that they inhabit will just sort of swallow them up. On that last point, um, one thing to remember is that the last year, for all the horrible things that we see on the news and coming out of Syria, has actually been fairly peaceful. You haven't had massive new conflicts breaking out. Syria, in some ways, has gotten a lot better. ISIS has been largely uh, destroyed as a territorial entity there. But you still have this latent potential for 
massive, massive casualties that we haven't seen on any sort of level on the Korean Peninsula. Now, is that a likely outcome? Probably not. But the longer this simmers, the more likely it becomes. And you also have, again, rumblings about pulling out of the Iran nuclear deal. Lawrence Wilkerson, who was Colin Powell's chief of staff as secretary of state under the Bush administration, published an op-ed in the New York Times yesterday saying, you know, what when I see Nikki Haley talk about Iran at the United Nations and saying, right, they're not in compliance with the JCPOA, the agreement, um, it reminds me a lot of what Colin Powell was uh, instructed uh, and, and said in the UN back in the early 2000s. So that's a big question mark moving forward that obviously would have ramifications beyond just economics. The other thing I wanted to say is we've been focused very much on the economy today and its effect on politics and voters. But the unusual aspects of, of politics in the last year or so, which really is kind of a synonym for the rise of right-wing populist parties in developed economies. Again, most of the research says economic anxiety is overstated when it comes to why people are supporting those parties. Right? It has a lot more to do with concerns about immigration, racial resentment, and things of this nature. So fixing the economy might make people feel better on that dimension, but if people don't see results right, that they imagine they would see on immigration, again, I don't think the political situation is going to get settled. And I think Helen gets the last word again this week, but a longer last word than last week where her last word was housing. <laughs> um, Plastics. So can I ask you the sort of the, and we also avoided this word last week, but I'll do it this time, the kind of existential question, which is if a return to growth, okay, there'll be volatility in the markets, inflation fears and so on, but something which in a sense we've been waiting for for 10 years, which is for growth to come back into developed Western economies. If that doesn't right the ship of politics, then isn't this kind of politics in really deep trouble? Because if that doesn't right the ship, at some point, that's going to end too. And there will be another crash or there will be another event, there'll be another incident, there'll be another war, something will happen. So if we don't stabilise when the conditions that we've lived with for the last 10 years change, we'll never stabilise. I think that we need to think more carefully about what the conditions have been for the economic conditions have been for the last 10 years, because actually the American economy has been growing since 2009. British economy has been growing since 2010. But growing slowly. It's been growing in, you know, around between two and two and a half percent a year on average. It's not this three percent figure that have been got in the US case by 2007, 2008. But in America and Britain, at least, the Eurozone, some of the Eurozone economies are clearly different here. In America and Britain, at least, the politics of the last 10 years has not been created by a growth crisis as such. It's more, in the case of the United States, to do with where that growth has been and what sectors of the economy and who has benefited from it and the ongoing problems, at least, around manufacturing production and manufacturing employment, actually, more than manufacturing production in the case of, of Britain, it's, I think, about housing as much as it is about anything else. And even if, let's say, for the sake of argument, the British economy was to grow at more than 3% over the next few years, I don't particularly see that happening, but that's not the point, is if large numbers of voters are in a position where housing costs are taking up between 40-50% of their income, it's not going to make any difference whether the economy is going at 2%, 3% or 4% because their experience, economic experience of everyday life is going to be extremely difficult. So in the case of Britain, I think that it's difficult to see how many people's sense of like what the economy is doing for them 
changes without the housing question changing. So to go back where we started, is this actually, I mean, inequality is much more complex than people normally allow and they want to just have one headline figure or account of inequality and it cuts across lots of different dimensions and a lot of this is about quite complex distributive questions but nonetheless is actually this about as you say it's it's where the growth ha- happens not the fact of growth and the growth is being very unevenly distributed is yeah. that the, the central crisis and what i described as a return to different kinds of conditions does not touch that so in a sense that is the piketty account Yes, I mean, I think Aaron's right that quite a lot of the politics of the last 10 years in Britain and the United States and in Europe and the continental Europe is also to do with immigration, So, which is partly an economic question, it's partly a, a cultural question. But I think where we haven't got past what's happened in 2008 is, is that the structural causes of that crisis, including in relation to the financialization of economies and then the policy response to that crisis has created um, an economic um, world, primarily monetary and financial, but not exclusively, that nobody really understands and the, the politicians don't know how to deal with in terms of its consequences, including in distributional terms. And it will continue to generate the kinds of events in the share markets that we've seen in the, the last few days, and it could generate much worse than that. As Aaron said, we spoke to Thomas Piketty last year. It was just before Macron won. But I still think it's definitely worth listening to, not least because he's quite sceptical about Macron. So we'll post the link to that on Twitter at tppodcast underscore. Next week, we're talking to the author of this year's most exciting book. But because it's embargoed, I'm not allowed to tell you who it is or what the book is. So you're just going to have to trust me. It's definitely going to be worth tuning in next week to hear about this year's most exciting book. Do join us for that. My name is David Runciman and we've been talking politics. My, my, my breakfast was the, the proverbial bowl of Alpen, uh, so no, a completely uneventful morning. Uh, it's, it's Waffle Wednesday. So we had waffle. It's Waffle Wednesday again. We had waffles. You don't have tacos on Taco Tuesday in the morning, do you? I was much more boring. I went back to real clear politics and trying to get my head round volatility index derivatives. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Helen. <laughs> you teaser. Peak, peak Helen. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay. It's the political conversation that everyone's else, yeah. having. <laughs> Volati- what was it again? Volatil- volatility in- volatility index <laughs> derivatives. As opposed to volatility derivative index indices. <sighs> Just the one. No, you can't trade the index. That's why you need derivatives off the, generated from the index. <laughs> Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. 
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.